Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Today on the podcast... We have Maddie Velasco, and Maddie, um, super excited to have her today. She works in the addiction and mental health field with um, American Addiction Centers in Florida. She is a mother and wife with a personal recovery story of her own. Maddie has worked to help um, to help heal those involved with human trafficking. She is passionate about trauma-informed recovery and helping others on their recovery journey. Maddie has started Fruit of the Tree, which is an interactive platform for the very purpose of recovery and that process. Um, Maddie, super excited to have you on today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I just appreciate you taking time out of your, you know, your busy schedule and and being with us and being able to share some of your your perspective and some of the things you've learned along the way. Because I just think I love the story. I always love the story, and so maybe we just start there by you know, maybe talking about how you ended up in the recovery industry. We always joke on the podcast that I will, I will guarantee, I don't even have to be a betting person to guarantee as a little girl, you probably did not think I am going to be in the recovery industry and I'm going to help people recover, right? That was not on the forefront of your mind as you're this little girl growing up. Um, and, And so it's always an interesting story to see how, you know, how your life has come to this place. So I'd love to hear some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always say I feel like we all get into the substance use and mental health field for different reasons, but generally because we've been touched by it either personally or someone within our family or someone that we know and love and care about. And so for me, what that looks like um, began in childhood. And I was born to a family of addicts and alcoholics. Um, my parents were cocaine addicts and my grandmother was an alcoholic. Um, my grandfather was the enabler of the family and he was also a rageaholic. And so early on, um, there was some very interesting family dynamics that took place. And, um, I was first introduced to alcohol at the age of three. And, um, the reason I know this is because there's photographs. (laughs) that's pretty young I mean that's really young to be introduced to alcohol yes absolutely and so I grew up in an environment that was oftentimes very unstructured 
um, and unpredictable. And um, my, my mother struggled with mental health. Um, and so I also witnessed her struggle as a child. And the first time that I was introduced to substances was at the age of six. And um, my, my mother would lock herself in the bedroom for days on end. Um, and so, you know, very quickly as a child, obviously, my mother was the center of my universe, you know, um, and all I wanted and needed and desired was to be close to my mother. And so I would sit outside of her bedroom door um, for hours on end and just, you know, crying for my mom. And um, of course, I knew I figured out very quickly what she was doing in there. And so one of my earliest formative memories uh, was crying with my face under the crack of the bedroom door for my mother uh, to come out. And so, you know, as a child, very quickly, I figured out if I wanted to be close to my mother, I had to do what my mother was doing. And so at the age of six, I began doing cocaine with my mother to be close to her. And uh, so, you know, when we talk about early formative memories and initial disconnects in childhood, um, for me, that was it, you know. And when we talk about um, developing self-worth, you know, and um, a perspective of self as a child, um, that was huge for me because, uh, you know, to experience that perceived rejection from one's caretaker at such an early age really affected my development, um, my ways of coping, and my view of self. And so that was, you know, incredibly formative in how I moved forward from childhood. Oh my goodness, I guess. Let me ask you this question, which is, it's coming up for me is, can you can you identify and this this may be difficult but identify how much of a role um, using drugs and being loved did you connect using drugs with being loved in that early those early years right because here you are trying to connect with your mom and the only way to do that is if you're doing drugs and I have all sorts of questions around that that you may or may not be able to answer but 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 because you were so young um, did you connect that with, I have to do drugs if I'm lovable? Um, absolutely. I would say yes. Being so young and um, not understanding anything else, you know, seeing this behavior modeled for me and my family by all of the adults and caretakers around me um, and connecting that substance use with a form of validation and closeness. You know, um, as children, we're young and we're vulnerable and we're powerless over the things in our environment. And so, you know, as a means of survival, we have to adapt to our environment and our caretakers, right? And so in that sense, um, in order to survive, right? Because if I'm, if I'm a baby and my caretaker rejects me, I won't survive. So whether I realized it or not on a conscious or unconscious level, that was my form of achieving acceptance from my caretakers in order to survive. And, um, and in that sense, yeah, that was my earliest um, form of self-betrayal, right? Mm. So I had to essentially betray myself in order to adapt to my caretaker um, so that I could 
survive and find that closeness and validation because as human beings you know that's what we all need is to have a form of connection mm. and i the words that you use are interesting to me because you've betrayed yourself which suggests that on some level that younger part of you understood that what you were doing wasn't okay i mean you because I, I have a hard time thinking that a six-year-old has the capacity to betray themselves, right? But on some level, in order for you to use those words, I would suggest that you, you had an understanding that this isn't something you should have been doing. I, I'm curious. Yes. Yeah, so I would say I learned that later on in life when I started learning about trauma. Um, as a six-year-old, I certainly didn't have the capacity to understand anything else but what was being modeled for me in my home. Um, however, in my adult years, I began learning about, um, trauma caused by emotional neglect. And so for many years growing up, uh, I, I thought that because I grew up in, and used substances and had consequences, um, that something must've been wrong with me because I never experienced that traditional form of trauma that people typically associate um, however, when I started learning that emotional neglect is a form of trauma and trauma is really just the way that we internalize the experiences that happen to us, that was incredibly eye-opening for me. Uh, because for many years, I just thought I was an inherently bad person hmm. and I carried a lot of shame and I, you know, my self-talk was like, you know, what is wrong with me? Uh, why am I like this? Why did I turn out this way? You know, I, I, I had a, what I believed to be a good childhood at the time. And so learning about emotional dysregulation and learning about uh, self-abandonment and learning about these things uh, was really transformative for me because it helped me to lift some of that shame and understand um, that it wasn't my fault and that the emotional neglect that I experienced as a child uh, was indeed trauma. And then I started on the journey of, you know, how to work on healing some of that. Mm. Oh, my word. And, and, and I hear you talk about the trauma and, and oh, it's such an interesting human behavior to accept responsibility for all of the things that we do in our lives when, in fact, and I know on some level you're saying that's just what you were exposed to. That's all you knew. That was normal for you. You had no way of knowing that this isn't what everybody else is doing and every other family is like. In those early years as a six-year-old, and I know this doesn't probably make any difference, but I'm curious how your mother came to a place where it was okay for a six-year-old to come in and use with her. Were you begging and asking for that? Or or like how did that how did that transpire? I'm curious. Absolutely. So um, I feel that, you know, we all have our different forms of trauma and our different forms of coping. And uh, so for my mother and my parents, um, you know, they had their own unhealed traumas and issues from their childhood and the emotional neglect that they experienced, and in some cases, abuse as well. Uh, and so you know, just recognizing that um, really helps to come from a place of understanding and compassion and, and forgiveness for some of the things that transpired. And um, just recognizing that, you know, 
we all have these generational um, traumas that have been passed on and just practicing awareness over that and developing, you know, better ways of coping. So that six-year-old, you know, not fully understanding the experience, you know, I developed ways of coping. And so what that looked like for me, my two main forms of coping was, you know, validation, right? And so I began to seek approval and validation from the people around me. And I became an overachiever in school. So that was my way of regaining control because I didn't have any control over my environment at home. But what I could do was I could go to school and I could overachieve and I could in return get the form of validation and approval I was seeking and have some measure of control over my life. And so for me, uh, early on, whether it was explicitly or implicitly, you know, I made a promise to myself, essentially, as a six-year-old child, having had this experience, um, consciously or unconsciously, I promised myself that I was, I was going to go and I was going to prove, right, that I was worthy of love and validation that mm-hmm. I was seeking from my parents. And I was going to do this through achieving and um, overachieving in school. And so that started me on my journey of perfectionism. And I always like to say I am, I am a recovering perfectionist, (laughs) you know? So, but later on I would learn um, that that has a cycle too, right? Mm -hmm. So just like the cycle of addiction and um, perfectionism also has a cycle and that's the shame cycle. So, and I already carried shame from this initial childhood disconnect um, which I discovered actually when I went through treatment and they had me sit down and write my life story. And when I did this and I did it fearlessly and thoroughly, I discovered these disconnects in my childhood that I had sort of buried in the recesses of my mind, you know, as is typical that happens with trauma. Um, and so when I sat down and did this life story and started pinpointing these disconnects, I started seeing patterns and I started recognizing these coping mechanisms that I developed. And then from there, I started practicing awareness over it. And what I discovered was that I had been deeply, deeply, deeply embedded in this cycle of shame that kept me sick, um, And so that was just such a transformative time for me, um, learning about, because when I first came into treatment, I didn't even know that I was experiencing shame. Mm -hmm. That's how unaware I was. Um, And so just that simple act of, you know, recognizing the shame cycle was incredibly powerful because then I could start practicing healing over it. Mm. Well, and, and it's fascinating to me because it's obvious that, yeah, you were maybe you could say you were an overachiever, but you were smart. You were this smart, you know, little person that said, I'm going to do all that I can to achieve what I can. And that that overachievement, that learning, that capacity to learn and understand was probably your one of your saving graces as you went through treatment to be able to you know, to learn and open up to new ideas and new ways of thinking, because that seems to be some of the hardest 
um, transitions for people in recovery is to to think that somehow how they grew up wasn't you know wasn't normal and that they can think and believe and and feel differently that's that's hard to do and so i don't know i just make that connection that your ability to learn and open up to that would probably have been a huge strength i'm curious how how your drug use at such a young age impacted your ability to to do school right you know and maybe it wasn't as intense as a younger person but it's it's interesting you know usually addiction has a way of taking over and not allowing us to do what we want how did that impact you Absolutely. And I love that you made that point, Shelley. That's a wonderful point because, um, you know, as addicts and alcoholics, people that have been affected by substance use, typically we are very smart people. We are highly adaptable. Um, And so for me, you know, going through treatment, you're absolutely right. That was an asset for me. Um, and I had to learn or unlearn, right? Because I feel like going through life, we are, you know, constantly, you know, learning and unlearning. Um, but for me going through treatment, yes, I had to, you know, learn how to recognize some of these patterns and that they weren't conducive to a life of recovery. And although they had worked for me in active addiction, they were no longer useful in recovery. And so I had to learn how to channel those things in a different way um, and be honest and open-minded and willing. And so you're absolutely right. Um, Something that had been in some cases a liability for me before could now be turned into an asset uh, now that I had some, was being given some tools Mm -hmm. to learn how to channel that. Um, And so for me going through school, I, I, I was able to identify another disconnect that happened to me when I was in high school. So I went through high school. I, you know, did very well. My very first job, I was a bank teller um, at Washington Mutual through a uh, financial internship through the Business Leaders of America um, and the Business Academy, which I did in school. And so... I was very good at maintaining and functioning, right? As, <laughs> as we typically do, um, at least for the time. Um, and I can remember in freshman year of high school, I got my first F. Ooh. Oh my goodness. That was like, you know, crushing for me. Uh, and so that was another disconnect that I was able to identify was when I got this F in geometry, of course, because (laughs) I I was able to excel in every other subject, but math was always a sticking point for me. And so I failed my geometry class and I just spiraled. Hmm. And so, you know, um, I was able to manage through the next few years of, of high school and maintain this internship and, uh, secure a scholarship to study abroad and, I had a plan to uh, major in international business um, at a college in Europe. And, you know, it was all planned out. And, um, yeah, that that F just caused me to go into a shame spiral, a years-long shame spiral. And so, of course, I didn't recognize that I was in a shame spiral or, um, you know, that I was, essentially, um, self-sabotaging. Um, so 
at that point, my senior year of high school was when everything began to essentially fall apart um, as far as my dreams of overachieving in school. Yes. Well, it's interesting that it wasn't the drugs, the drug use and the addiction that took you out. It was the shame, which is, which I, I mean, it just lends to the idea that, that addiction and drug use is a symptom. It's not the core of the issue and you have got to get to the core of the issue. So identifying that shame and really being able to unwind it is a huge gift, but oh, not easy, not easy at all. Absolutely. And you are absolutely correct. You know, um, drug use is just a symptom of something deeper and it generally, you know, um, all the emotions are secondary to shame. Um, generally shame is underneath these different emotions. And so when I came into treatment and, um, you know, I was honest and open-minded and willing and I started getting some tools, um, someone there helped teach me, one of my counselors, about the shame cycle. And, you know, someone who I love and admire to this day said one of the most valuable and probably most loving things that someone could have ever said to me. And she said, you know, Maddie, you're probably the angriest person that I've ever met. <laughs> oh, wow. Because you, yeah, I don't pick up any of that anger, but very interesting that that's what was showing up then. Yes. Well, it's interesting because initially I didn't understand what she meant. You know, me? Angry? How could I be angry? You know, and so, of course, I was determined to get to the bottom of why someone would ever think that I was an angry person. And what I discovered was just absolutely life-changing uh, because I started learning about this shame cycle and where the anger was coming from. And what that looked like for me was that cycle of perfectionism. Uh, where I would overachieve to seek validation. And then just in any instance, if I didn't get that validation or I disappointed myself or the world disappointed me, you know, because of these unrealistic expectations that I was putting on myself and everyone around me, that would turn into harboring resentment towards myself and towards the world, right? And that resentment later would turn into anger and just rage, rage at myself and rage at the world, you know, um, that I can't meet my own expectations and that others couldn't meet my own expectations. And it was all a product of that shame cycle. Um, and it all kind of fed into itself. And, um, you know, honestly, that was a pivotal moment for me. And just like those initial disconnects in childhood that sort of changed the course of the way that we interact with the world around us, that was absolutely a pivotal moment that changed my course um, to say, you know, essentially make another promise to myself that I did not want to continue in this cycle and that I wanted to start practicing healing over that and start lifting some of that shame so that I could, you know, essentially figure out who I was and the person that I wanted to be apart from that shame cycle. Um, as you, as you went through your recovery process, which, you know, which is not just when you're in recovery, but it's, you know, it's a whole journey of what you want. And like you said, kind of that self betrayal and I'm not true to myself and I want to be. And I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole, you know, events that, that lean into that. 
and I, I just imagine it. I've worked with people that, you know, have had been exposed to drugs at a very young age and not too many at the age of six had the opportunity to do cocaine. How, how, how hard was it for you to grab onto recovery? Did you have to go through the process numerous times? Was it a long journey? Was it a short journey? I'm just curious because I think this would give hope to a lot of people who are, you know, similar or that have really, you know, not had the opportunities that others have. Absolutely. And I always say that going through treatment was such an invaluable experience for me because I had so many tools and resources at my fingertips. I had so many wonderful people to guide me and pass on their experience, strength, and hope um, through everything that they had learned through their trials and tribulations. And um, that is just something that is unparalleled. And um, I would say, so I went through treatment one time and I have been clean and sober from all mood and mind altering substances since for three and a half years now. And um, so that for me was what was missing, right? So I came to a point where essentially I had just resigned to a life of, you know, of drug use. And um, I didn't know that there was anything else out there. I didn't know that there was anything different. And so when I went through treatment, um, I had a desire, uh, but I just didn't have the tools. And so what treatment did for me was it gave me those tools and it allowed me the time and the space to be able to discard some of those old patterns and some of those old survival techniques um, and, and learn a new way to live and a new way to think. And essentially what that did for me was I was able to uh, grieve the loss of my old identity and this person that I had created to survive throughout childhood and, and into adulthood. Um, and it allowed me to realign myself with what my values were in life and what was the life that I wanted to create for myself and what you know, was my identity moving forward as a woman in recovery. And it gave me the tools to build a foundation as a woman in recovery, apart from that child um, that I had been previously. And so that was just so powerful. And so, you know, developing this sense of self apart from and practicing that self-acceptance that I never, um, never had previously. Mm. And, and again, and it fascinates me because everybody has a different journey and some who, you know, maybe didn't start until their teens or, you know, twenties in using drugs may have had a, a much more difficult time, um, you know, really grabbing hold of recovery and figuring out what they needed out of recovery in order to sustain sobriety. But that, that doesn't change the journey or the struggle um, and it's just, it's just fascinating how each person has to do their own journey and has to figure out where they're at. I'm wondering if there was a pivotal moment, one or more pivotal moments for you that got you to treatment. Absolutely. So, um, my pivotal moment that got me to treatment was the consequences. So I actually did not go to treatment willingly. I was told to go to treatment. 
um, by the court system. And at the time, that was um, something that absolutely saved my life. And so, but once I got there, thankfully, uh, I was honest and open-minded and willing. And those consequences served a purpose. And I did have that gift of desperation because I truly did not want to live that way anymore. And I had so many women to help guide me through the process. The women in my life have been paramount to my recovery. I honestly couldn't have done it without the strong women that I have in my life today. Um, just through their experience, strength, and hope, and their guidance. They have truly loved me until I could learn to love myself. Because when I first came into recovery, I certainly didn't know how to love myself. Like I said, I had so much shame that I didn't even know that I had. And so many layers um, of shame to work through. And obviously, like you said, it's a journey, not a destination. So we're, we are always on this journey and discovering new layers um, of healing, which is one of the incredible parts of recovery. Um, and so today I just really hold close to the women in my life. Um, and I recognize that, you know, all feelings are messengers, right? Hmm. All feelings come to teach me something. And so instead of resisting them, like I used to do in the past, um, I embrace them and I sit with them and I and I try to learn from them and I ask them what what it is that they're trying to teach me, you know, and I like to practice the role of being a curious observer, you know, as opposed to judging myself um, for my human experience and the feelings <laughs> that, that are coming up. I, uh, I embrace that human experience and I try to be the curious observer. And I love to ask myself questions. You know, what can I learn from this? What is this trying to teach me? You know, um, am I in fear right now? And if I wasn't so afraid, how, what, what, what would I do? You know, um, and, you know, things like, is this helping me to create the life that I want to create? And is this bringing me closer to being the woman that God intends me to be? And so I find that asking myself questions like that um, has been extremely helpful because it helps me to simplify, right? It helps me to um, take a step back from the emotions that I'm feeling, get an objective view, simplify the situation, and then I can get in the solution a lot quicker that way. Mm. Well, and it helps to, it's very intentional of, I mean, those questions you're asking yourself, they aren't, you know, why is this taking over my life and why does this feel so horrible? But the curiosity of, wow, this is interesting that I'm feeling this way, which takes away the power of the feeling. Because so often when we're not, when we don't have those tools and we don't understand that a feeling is fluid, it comes and goes, it feels like we're going to die. It is, it truly creates pain and sometimes physical pain. It's so intense. And, and the idea, I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day, the idea of sitting with those emotions feels insanity, right? That feels like, you're, are you kidding me? I got to push it away. I got to get away from it. I got to do whatever I can. But in that very act of trying to push it away, it intensifies because it does have a message for us. It is trying to tell us something. And when we can get to a place of, and you use these words, emotional regulation, to where we can sit with those really difficult emotions and be curious about them, because they're not going to kill us, even though it feels like it, 
that that practice allows us to look at them deeper and understand them to where they can go, ah, thanks, Maddie, for for hearing me out, because like I've been trying to protect you and you've been exiling me forever. And now you're listening and thank you. And now maybe I can go do my job differently and more effectively because we're communicating instead of beating each other up. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, and it's, it increases, yes, your effectiveness and your connection to self, right? Um, it helps me to be more centered and aligned. And, you know, I would liken that experience to a spiritual awakening. Um, you know, I've had many spiritual awakenings, some of them, you know, very grand. And, um, but I, I like to think of it as that I have ongoing spiritual experiences, like these realizations, right? So in the literature, it describes a spiritual experience as being nothing more than a shift in perspective. Mm. And so, you know, understanding and putting some of these things into practice are absolutely spiritual experiences that I've had because it's helped me to shift my perspective. And when I shift my perspective, I can view myself and view the world differently. And it enables me to be more centered and aligned in myself and in turn, in the way that I interact with the world around me. And when I came into recovery and they told me that a spiritual toolkit had been laid at my feet and all I had to do was pick it up, I really didn't understand what they meant. You know, um, what does that mean, a spiritual toolkit? How do I pick it up? You know, and that's when I started learning about spiritual principles and that in any moment I could simply choose to reach for these spiritual principles in place of these old behaviors and these old patterns of thinking. And the more that I chose to reach for the spiritual principles, instead, the more I retrained my brain um, to do this as in second nature. And so that was really, um, the spiritual principles are a huge part of my recovery today. And I tried to you know, look at every decision that I make in reference to the spiritual principles. And I choose because today I have the power of choice to reach for those principles instead and do something that I like to call closing the gap. Right. So in the beginning, when I first started trying to practice these principles, not really understanding and not having had any experience with practicing them, um, it was really difficult. And there was a lot of resistance, as you said, um, But the more that I tried to live with intention and be intentional about um, my responses so that I could respond instead of react, um, and I practiced the pause, right, and give myself time to find that emotional regulation within my body, um, I was able to slowly but surely start closing the gap between the time that it took me to get in the solution and, you know, practice the principle until one day the gap was just completely closed. And now it's like second nature. Mm. Well, and, and I love that you talk about the journey because it is, it's a journey. And, and even today, I mean, I know I still work on the practice and I can describe it perfectly, but I can't always do it perfectly, right? Because there is no perfect and it's a journey, and and if we were perfect, then life wouldn't be very fun, would it? We gotta we gotta have the bumps and the 
hiccups and the learning pieces. Otherwise, it's just not fun. Absolutely. And so that's where compassion comes in. Self-compassion comes into play. You know, um, whenever I fall into my humanity, um, I just recognize that I'm human and I'm fallible in nature and that there is beauty in all of it because it's all learning, a learning and growth process. And I can practice compassion over it. Um, I practice self-forgiveness. And that's been huge for me um, in my journey as a recovering perfectionist um, <laughs> because that, that simple act of, you know, being curious versus being judgmental, being compassionate versus being judgmental, and being still with my feelings and understanding my, and accepting my humanity has helped to lift that shame and, and really helped me, you know, integrate into my human experience. So mm. it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, working the steps, right? So the steps, only the first step um, mentions drugs and alcohol. The rest of the steps are about life. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's as, as I started working the steps with a sponsor and, and going through them one by one, it was amazing to me the results that I started seeing um, by, by just simply applying each step in order. And so each step builds on the other. And if I'm doing it right and I'm applying these things to my life, then I am just going to have the spiritual principle as a natural byproduct of working each step. So each step has a spiritual principle that goes along with it. And as I began working these steps, I started seeing these spiritual principles, you know, just naturally evolving in my life as a result of working the steps. And, and so for me, that was just really like eye opening because it's like, wow, there is a solution. This does work. And, you know, I can practice these principles and I can do it with grace, you know, <laughs> and when I mess up, guess what? There's a step for that too. So, and that's okay. Well, and it's interesting to, you know, I've been having kind of this paradigm shift that this idea that we don't want to make mistakes, but it's the same time, there is no growth without a challenge or a mistake or something that requires effort to change and shift. And so shouldn't we be making mistakes all over the place? Now, not intentional, right? Let's not go out and create an addiction so we can recover from it. That's not the idea. But that grace, that that ability to be self-forgiving and, and go, you know, this is part of human behavior and human life. And if I can't embrace that, I'm losing the opportunity for the growth that's in that moment. And so embrace it, that self-compassion you talked about and and just be able to go, yeah, I welcome this error or this mistake or this whatever we want to call it. Because in my sense, it's just in my in my thought process, it's just growth. It's growth and change and learning. And and how do we get enough of that? Right. Because the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. I don't know anything. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, for me, that's why humility is one of the foundational principles, you know, of my recovery. And they say in the literature that, you know, without this principle of humility, we can't really effectively practice any of the other principles because to me, having humility is remaining teachable, you know, uh, recognizing that I still have so much more to learn and not only, you know, um, seeing it as a challenge, but, you know, a joy. Um, for 
me today, you know, learning is a joy. Um, self-discovery is a joy. You know, um, like Kurt says, I am also fascinated by the human experience. Um, and so uh, for me, you know, it wouldn't be the same without those obstacles that have, you know, been placed along my path to be able to integrate the lessons that they come to teach me with with some humility and some grace and compassion. And what's amazing is when I'm able to practice those things towards myself, they become a natural extension to other people around me. And, um, and so today, you know, that's kind of how those things show up in my life. And another thing is just tremendous gratitude. Um, I really wake up every day and, and, and leave the house, you know, with a perspective of gratitude because it's, for me, gratitude is a tool that I use every day. Um, and so I look at these spiritual principles as tools that I can pick up and gratitude is something that I use all the time because it helps me to shift my perspective. It helps me to change the way that I'm looking at things. Um, and the way that I'm, you know, interacting with people in the world around me. So all those things are just like integral to, you know, my life today in recovery and how they have helped me to sustain my recovery. Because it's one thing, you know, to get clean and sober. It's another thing to stay clean and sober. And so for me, these are the tools that I use to maintain my recovery on an everyday basis. It's so fascinating. And I love the way you describe your recovery and your process and are so clear about those steps and those tools and those coping strategies and all of those pieces that you're able to acquire. Not, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm so clear about all the details. I can see the bigger picture, right? But you're so good about the details of it. Um, I'm, I want to ask about your relationship. You talked about a long line of you know, family members that came from addiction. They were taught addiction the same as, as you were taught addiction and, and coping strategies in those, in those realms, right? Because let's just be real, drugs are a great coping strategy. They mess us up later on down the road and the consequences, like you said, are undesirable, but it, but it does. It, it has some value and it works on some level. <clears throat> and so it's easy to, to, you know, to be compassionate about those cultures and that, that way that family dynamics were. I'm curious what your relationships are with your family now, um, you know, based on all of the changes that you've made and the new discoveries that you've had over time. Absolutely. So um, to that, I would say that, you know, another really important promise that I made to myself um, you know, after coming into recovery and building a foundation as a woman in recovery and now as a, as a mother and a wife, uh, I have two children, my daughter is four and my son is two, and I've been married uh, over two years now, and we have been able to develop our own unique family unit um, with a lot of these lessons that, that we've learned about family dynamics. Um, my, my husband also has a history of um, emotional neglect and abuse in his childhood. And so it's really actually very beautiful uh, what we have been able to learn about ourselves and incorporate into our value system in our own family. Um, and to really begin breaking some of those generational cycles. And so that was a huge promise that I made to myself um, was that I wanted to break that generational cycle, you know, and I wanted to 
uh, provide a loving and stable nurturing home for my children. Um, and so today we just have our own little family unit. Um, a majority of my family members have passed away. And so really today it is, you know, me and my husband building our own foundation in life and moving forward and providing, um, you know, through our family and that value system for our children that they don't have to experience those things that, that we experienced in childhood. And also, um, you know, beginning a new journey, practicing the steps in adult children of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I practiced the steps, the 12 steps um, through the fellowship of AA. And so now I'm kind of beginning a new season um, in learning more on a deeper level um, and discovering new layers of healing um, and by working the steps through adult children of alcoholics, because that program really addresses everything that we've talked about here today in the sense that, you know, these family dynamics, um, toxic roles within the family, you know, the coping mechanisms that happen as a result, um, and how to really heal those things, um, not just for myself, but for my children as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and those are powerful desires. And, and it's interesting that the way you talk about, you know, your family of origin, you know, most of them have passed away, but that you're able to find real um, fulfillment in your immediate family. And, and for some, that's that might be just friends, right? Maybe family's not safe or maybe whatever the dynamic, right? There's all sorts of scenarios that 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 you can still create a very safe, fulfilling environment um, and surround yourself with that. And that's part of the healing process is that you can be okay with that. Right. And, and whatever your situation is. So I love that you talk about that dynamic and, and how happy it makes you to be able to, to, you know, change that cycle and to, um, to heal the generations by doing so. It's pretty powerful. Yes, absolutely. And another aspect to that healing process is also not just um, within my family, but also, you know, being of service to other women around me. Um, that is something that is very close to my heart because, you know, through my own recovery journey, the women around me have just been so instrumental. And so, you know, passing that along to other women that come across my path, you know, by being of service, uh, for me, being of service is a huge like cornerstone in my recovery, um, because it creates that ripple effect, you know, that we were just speaking about. Um, and so the, you know, the women that I encountered helped me through their experience, strength and hope. And so, um, being of service to other women has been incredibly healing for me on my personal journey as well. And it just, it helps me to get closer to the woman that God intends me to be, you know, um, and that value system that I've created for myself and, and just also so that my journey and the pain that I experienced along the way doesn't have to be in vain. Right. So I can use it to serve a higher purpose. So it wasn't a, a waste, you know, I never want to waste the pain. I want to learn from it. And it's, and it's not just for me to learn from it's for others as well to learn from. And so just sharing, um, that experience and, and how I learned these tools, um, has been really pivotal for me as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I've loved hearing your story and, and your journey and understanding what that's looked like for you. Um, let's take just a couple of minutes before we before we end the the podcast episode and talk a little bit about um, Fruit of the Tree and what inspired you to create that and what it does and the work that you're doing there um, and how people can connect with you. Absolutely, yeah. So I started Fruit of the Tree as just a personal project, a blog, um, where I could have a space to write about um, different topics like recovery, mental health, parenting, and spirituality. And so those are some of the main things that I cover on my blog. Um, I have a few articles about grief and loss, uh, because as I mentioned, a majority of my family has passed away and what that you know, looks like and how that affected my recovery. And also I have one on uh, grace and perfectionism and that cycle that we spoke about. And so I post articles there and I've also started um, a little bit of a photography business as well as an extension of that. Um, and so you can find that on fruitofthetree.com with dashes in between. So it's fruitofthetree.com with dashes. And um yeah, essentially, I started off in the field as a case manager, and I was working with a nonprofit organization called Created, and they worked specifically with at-risk populations of women who had experienced sexual exploitation and human trafficking, and so that has also been a big part of my journey as well, and then now moving into um, working at American Addiction Centers. Um, I recently got the position of care coordinator there, and so that is something that's very exciting because it gives me a lot of um, flexibility in, in implementing things with the clients. Uh, we're starting a sponsorship program to get you know the clients working with sponsors and different things like that. And so it's all just you know really exciting stuff and just working on kind of developing the blog space and the photography business right now. Mm, that's fantastic. And I love that you can, you know, that's another piece is to, um, you know, to bring creativity into your life and to give back. And, and I can tell that you've, you know, that you've really put some effort into that and connecting with people and, and also feeding those things that are important to you, like the photography, right? Which, which is such a fantastic way of expressing um, ourselves and seeing beauty and you talked about gratitude Gra gratitude is a deal changer and 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 maybe if people only practiced gratitude um, you know that they would come a long ways because it is so powerful when you really can take it from your from your head into your heart and really feel those feelings of deep gratitude um, it's it is powerful so I love I love all the concepts that you've talked about super powerful and and, um, and they work because every, you know, we've got, we've had a ton of people on the, on the podcast that have shared some of the same ideas. And, and it's interesting how each person's journey is unique as yours is, um, but also has similar principles and similar coping strategies and, you know, pieces that they're just true, right? It just, it works for people and how you apply it might look a little different, but it, it still is you know, the shame and figuring out how to get away from the shame and instituting compassion and curiosity and all the things we talked about today. So I love that you've shared those with us and been willing to share your story. 
Maddie. Thanks for being on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.